part three of contending for the truth about grace. Uh, and some of you, we had an Empower weekend last weekend. Some of you will not have been here last weekend. If you did not hear last weekend's, I encourage you to go and please listen to it because really important stuff for the series. In week one, we talked a lot about what grace isn't. Last week, we talked a lot more about what grace is. And so again, like all of our messages, you can listen to them for free online. We don't care. We're not trying to make money off them. We're just trying to get as much of the truth out there as we possibly can. But I would challenge you to go and listen to it. But just to give a brief review for those of you who are not here, uh, we talked about what grace is. And one thing that grace is, now it's just one component of it. Today we're going to look at another component. Next week we're going to look at another component. But one big component of what grace is, is that grace is God empowering you and me, giving us the desire and the energy to do what pleases Him, all right? And we contrasted that with grace, what grace is not. Grace is not God's allowance that he doesn't care anymore if I, if I shoot for holiness or not. And then grace covers it when I don't shoot for it. No, no, no. Grace is God empowering me to live up to his standards, not him lowering his standards. Amen? And then we looked at what does the grace life look like then? If that is true, what does it look like? And we talked about the high bar, Second uh, Peter, the calling for the Christian life. God says to every single one of us who, who thinks of ourselves and calls ourselves a, a believer and a follower of Christ, he says, be holy as I am holy, right? Be holy in all your conduct. So he sets this high bar, be holy in all your conduct. And of course, it's too high for us. We can't, we can't clear it. And so he says, I'm going to have to help you, and that's grace, right? So he kneels by the bar, and he says, I'm going to boost you over the bar of my standards. You can't clear it on your own. Now, here's what he does not do, and we talked about this last week as well. He doesn't just pick you up, and you're like kind of a limp rag doll and toss you over. No. He expects us to pursue, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy, uh, whatever, somewhere in there. But anyways, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy both, I should, have, I should have had it in my notes, but he says, pursue righteousness. So there's an aspect where, yes, I can't do it on my own, but he doesn't do it all for me. And so he says, I want you to line up. You're going to clear that bar, and I'm going to help you, but you're going to take a jump at it. You're going to reach for it. And so then we talked about how the fact that we're all imperfect, right? And so we, we go for this bar, be holy as I am holy. And we go and he's at the bottom there, he's ready to boost us. But because we're imperfect, we get our eyes off him, we get distracted, we trip up, we mess up, we make mistakes. And of course, we miss the bar many times. And we fall and we hurt ourselves and we're dirty. And we talked about God's emotions toward us when we fall in the midst of, in, in the pursuit of holiness. When we fall while we're in the pursuit, reaching for the bar of holiness. When we fall like that, God is never mad at us. He says, we get up, we pick ourselves up, we're hurt, we're bruised, we're dusty. We say, I'm sorry, Lord. And he says, I forgive you, I delight in you. And he delights in us. But he doesn't say then, and since I love you so much, I'll just let you pass under this bar. No, he never, never gives us a free pass of that. He says, I love you. I forgive you. He gives us a hug and he says, line up and you do it again, right? And so whether it takes you a hundred times, a thousand times, or a hundred thousand times, his forgiveness is new and fresh every time, but he wants you going over that bar and he's going to help you get over that bar. And once you clear that hurdle in your life and you overcome that sin issue or character issue, whatever it is, he celebrates with you and then he says, and now I have a new bar because it's be holy as I am holy in all your conduct. And that's the grace walk, but he's not mad at you when you fail. Amen? So it's very important. Now, today I want to talk about a couple of things. One of them I promised you last week. Uh, and in the second half of this message, we're going to talk about the difference between immaturity and rebellion. It's very, very important that we understand the difference between those two things. 
Immaturity and rebellion. God has infinite, tender, loving patience for immaturity because all of us has immaturity. Until we see Jesus face to face, none of us is going to be 100% mature. He has infinite amounts of tender, loving patience for immaturity, but he resists the proud. He really hates and has no patience for rebellion. And so what we need to know is when we're messing up in life, are we messing up out of immaturity and weakness while we're in a pursuit of holiness, or are we blazing our own path? Are we in rebellion, in which case he's resisting us, all right? Very important that we understand that. We're going to get to that in the second half of this message. And may I just say, I'm actually, I can hardly wait to get to the second half of this message because the second half of this message is really wonderful, okay? But before we get to the second half of this message, and, uh, you know, and there's such good news in the second half, so you need to stick with me, okay? I'm just telling you that now so you just don't, you don't give up. But in the first half, we have to look at what I was yesterday going to call bad news. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, if, if it's in the Bible, it's not bad news, it's true news, right? And if it's true news, it's good news. And the first thing we have to talk about is we have to talk about this issue of works. Because in our culture, there is just a tremendous, tremendous confusion in a Christian church about this, this, this word works. And people in our Christian culture have this idea that the moment somebody starts talking about holiness and, a po- and the possibility of God being mad at you and the possibility of God punishing you or disciplining you, the moment, there's, the moment you talk about that kind of stuff, a whole bunch of people in the church throw up their hands and go, you're preaching work salvation. It's like, get away from me, work salvation, teacher and preacher. And so there's this confusion about works. Works is like a bad word. And so we have to look at what the scriptures actually say about works. And it doesn't matter. You know, the, the sad thing is on this works thing is people are so worked up about it, but they're so, uh, you know, they're so freaked out by this idea of work salvation. There's this phrase in their head, work salvation, that it doesn't matter. You show them tons and tons and tons of scripture about the importance of holiness and good fruit. And they can't see the scripture. They can't see half of what the Bible says because they're reading it with these glasses that say, I'm not going to touch anything that seems to me to be work salvation. And, and that is a dangerous thing when we have a fear in our minds that keeps us from reading large chunks of Scripture. Amen? We've got to follow the truth and what the Bible says. And, uh, and one thing in particular that really, uh, uh, you know, kind of instigated some of this message is, I mean, again, this teaching is just so prevalent in the church. And by the way, again, we're going to explain this works thing. When we get to the end of it, you're going to actually love the whole, the, what the Bible says about works. You're going to love it. And then when we get to the immaturity and rebellion thing, you're going to be so encouraged but one of the things that really kind of is, is on, on the inside is really causing me to be uh, zealous about this is just that the, the amount of false teaching about this. I just read a teaching recently, and, and this is all over. It's not one person. It's not two people. It's lots of people. And, and it's people who are trusted. It's people who 98% of the time, the stuff that they're preaching is really good. Godly person walking with God, and then they teach this one thing, and they have a relationship with God. I'm not even worried about their salvation, but they're teaching this one thing over here, and a whole bunch of apathetic Christians are grabbing this, and they're just going to go right off the deep end, some of them to hell. And I read this one teaching in particular, a whole teaching, not just a little one, a big one. This is on the radio. This is everywhere. And what this guy did is he compared a carnal Christian to an unbeliever. A carnal Christian to an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. And, and he did this whole comparison. It was a whole teaching. And, and the unbeliever, he said, uh, steeped in sexual immorality and steeped in sin. And the carnal Christian, steeped in sexual immorality, steeped in sin, unrepentantly. And the, and the unbeliever is proud and self-centered and worldly. And the carnal Christian, all of those things, unrepentantly. 
And he went into detail with this teaching. And he said, on the outside, you can't tell the difference between the two. And the carnal Christian isn't repentant at all. Completely in love with the world. Completely the same in all of his actions and behavior as the unbeliever. And then this is what he said at the end of his teaching. And one goes to heaven and one goes to hell at the end because of grace. Brothers and sisters, okay, if that was just one place and one guy was teaching that, I wouldn't even worry about it. This is like right through the church. That is a serious distortion of the grace message, a serious distortion of it. It is dangerous. And so before we can talk about the difference between immaturity and rebellion, the immaturity and rebellion stuff doesn't even make sense to most people because most people just assume they're in one camp because they believe in Jesus. And we have to talk about this issue of fruit and works, all right? And so the first point I want to make here is that fruit matters. And I want you to remember, throughout this whole first part of the message, this is not bad news. This is true news. If this is what Jesus says is the truth, it's good for us, and it's good for the universe. But let's look at what the Bible teaches. Jesus said this, you will recognize them by their fruits. I mean, in that one sentence, Jesus takes this carnal Christian unbeliever uh, teaching that you can't tell the difference between the two and one goes to heaven, one goes to hell, and he just goes, he says, you can recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every, not some, not most, not occasionally, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, speaking of judgment. Every. I want you to notice the every again. And this is, again, not Chris. You know, it's a cop-out. Don't go out of this message and say, I didn't like that first point Chris preached. That's a cop-out. The question is not, do you like what I preach? The question is, what is what I'm preaching in the Bible? That's the only question. Nobody's going to be held accountable on Judgment Day. Did you believe what Chris said or not? It's going to be, did you hold to what the Bible said or not? This is not me saying this. This is Jesus. And Jesus says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. In this one passage, I'm going to show you more. It's not just one. It's many, many, many. I'm going to show you a bunch from Jesus. I'm going to show you a bunch from Paul. In this one passage, Jesus completely refutes something that a big chunk of the Western church today believes, and that is carnal Christian unbeliever, no difference, one goes to heaven, one goes to hell, simply because of what someone believes in their head. And Jesus has, I want you to notice in this passage, I'm going to show you more, Jesus and the Bible have no room in their theology for three kinds of trees. There's only two kinds of trees. Uh, The tree with good fruit is a good tree. The tree with bad fruit is a bad tree. And there's no third tree of a saved tree with bad fruit. It's not, it's not true. If there, it's a good tree, then it has good fruit. And if it's a bad tree, then it has bad fruit. And if it's a bad tree, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. And just to prove to you again that this is not, I'm not just taking one verse out of here and making a big doctrine out of it. It's all over Scripture. Let me show you more teachings of Jesus. Luke 6, 43 to 45. Jesus said this, for no good tree. Jesus talked a lot about fruit in the Bible. He had a lot of, uh, you know, fruit analogies and farm, farm analogies and that sort of thing. He says this, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree, each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. This is Jesus' teaching. 
The son of God, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's never told a lie. He's never told a half-truth. Everything he says is 100% true, and this is what he says. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Two kinds of people. You've got good trees and you've got bad trees. That's what Jesus says. How about the writings of Paul? On the positive side, this is what Paul said, Galatians 5, to 24, very famous passage. And again, we find Paul talking about fruit. See, works matter. What is fruit? He's talking about the behavior that you see on the outside of a person, the behavior, the attitude, the words, the actions, the works. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he's going to give a big bunch of characteristics of love. The fruit of the Spirit is is this. So if the Spirit is in someone, then they're a good tree, right? If the Spirit is at work in someone, this is the fruit. This is how you would know. The fruit of the Spirit is the behavior, actions, attitudes that come out of a person with the Spirit is love. And then he explains that joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now here's the thing I want to point out to you right away, first of all. And again, this is a famous passage. We've looked at this so many times. But we've kind of turned it into a theoretical passage whereby you've got Christians who have the Spirit in them, but they don't, they don't produce the fruit. And then you have Christians where it's a little better. It's like if you actually have the fruit. And that is not how Paul, I want you to notice somewhere here, and again, this is just very different for our Western mindset. Paul does not define here life in the Spirit as a list of beliefs. Okay, that's how, we in the West, we're all about belief. And you know, someone says, am I a Christian? And we just ask them, well, have you asked Jesus in your heart to believe in Jesus? And they say, yes. We immediately say, yes, you're a Christian. Yes, belief is important. We'll talk about that later in this message too. You've got to have the mental belief in Jesus too. Yes, for sure, Absolutely. But Paul here does not define life in the Spirit as a list of beliefs in your head. He defines the Spirit life as fruit. These things come out of you in the Spirit life. List of actions, not a list of beliefs. Now, of course, none of us is perfect. Again, I'm not saying here that none of us ever is this 100% of the time. Many of us are failing in this lots and lots of times. Every week for sure, I mess up in these things. Yes, But if the Spirit is in you, when you miss out on these things, it doesn't feel right. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, I hate that. But if you don't have this fruit in your life at all, and you're just barreling through life, and it doesn't even really hardly bother you, and you're just completely self-centered and in love with the world and not exhibiting this fruit, then the Spirit isn't in you. Good trees have good fruit and bad trees have bad fruit. That's just, that's just the scripture speaking, right? And I want you to notice one last thing from this passage here, and that's the last line. And it's, uh, the sun's going to come out in a few minutes, by the way, just so you know, but I just want to, this is still true news, okay? Good news. Last line there too. And those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, we all want to belong to Christ Jesus, right? I mean, belonging to Christ Jesus, I mean, if you call yourself a Christian, but you don't belong to, to Christ Jesus, then you're not saved. I mean, belonging to Christ Jesus, that's that's what it means to be saved. You belong to him, right? You're his, okay? Now, I want you to notice there, he tells us something real important about those who belong to Christ Jesus. And he doesn't say, you know, some people who belong to Christ Jesus do this, and then other carnal ones don't do it. No, no, there's not some who do and some who don't. It's just those who do. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus do something very important. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Again, this is what it means to belong to Jesus. You don't belong to Jesus if you're not doing this. Now, what we've done in North America is we've turned that last line into a theoretical thing. So everybody who's ever prayed a prayer to Jesus and asked him into their hearts would say, you ask them, have you crucified your flesh's desires? Yeah. Well, how do you know you have? Well, I asked Jesus into my heart. What? See, crucify, that is graphic, painful language. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you have to pick up your cross and follow me daily. Crucifying your flesh is not something you've done because one time at camp 30 years ago you prayed to ask Jesus into your life, even though that's a wonderful, great, amazing first step, and we all need to take a first step. But that doesn't crucify your flesh. Crucifying your flesh is a painful thing whereby if you belong to Jesus, this is how you live your life. You are coming against your own self-centeredness and your pride and your selfishness, and it's painful every day, sometimes more than others. But someone says something to you and you really want to give a harsh reply back. You really want to be defensive and you stop yourself and it actually hurts. But you're crucifying your flesh and you give back a kind answer. That's crucifying your flesh. It's not a theoretical thing. It's intensely practical and daily. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, not some, but all, this is what it means to belong to Christ Jesus, are those who are doing that and they have the fruit of the Spirit coming out of them. This is what it means to be a Christian. Now, that was the positive one. Let's go to the negative one now. <laughs> true news. It's true news, and it's good news. All truth is good news. It's good food. All right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, Paul says this on the flip side of the coin, too. He says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Let's just stop there right, more, right, right away again. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is shocking to our Western sensibilities because we would never write unrighteous in there. If we were writing this passage, we would write, or do you not know that the unbelievers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Isn't that true? We would not write unrighteous in there. We would write unbelievers. And that's because here in the West, we are obsessed with the whole work of salvation, the whole life of salvation following Jesus for us is completely mental. And yes, there is that side of it. You must have that. We'll talk about that later in this message. You must have a belief in Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. But the scripture is very clear that it is not just a mental belief. It's a belief that is completed by actions and fruit. And so Paul does not say, it's not, Chris is not saying this. Paul is saying this. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Not the unbelievers. He's not talking about the unbelievers. They won't, they won't inherit it either, but it's the unrighteous he's talking about. And then he says this, do not be deceived. Now, if language means anything, then that means a lot of people in his day were being deceived. There's a lot of people today being deceived by this too. He says, don't be deceived. He says, it's going to be real tempting to be deceived. People are going to come along and say that it is possible for unrighteous people to inherit the kingdom. Isn't that where a big, church, the, uh, a big chunk of the church is today? There's a whole huge chunk of the church that thinks that lots of unrighteous people, carnal Christians, will inherit the kingdom of God. So long as they have a few mental beliefs as fire insurance in their head, they're going to heaven, they're inheriting the kingdom, all of that sort of stuff. Paul says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And then he has to go and make a list, right? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves. And so far, many of us go, whew, not on the list. 
And he has to keep going, right? Nor the greedy. Oh, why? Why that one? Right? Nor drunkards, nor revilers. That's mockers. Sarcastic. They're cutting people down all the time. Nor swindlers, people who take advantage of people, will inherit the kingdom of God. That is the Apostle Paul. Again, I want to emphasize this point. We have made heaven or hell an intellectual issue. Heaven or hell is an intellectual issue. The only question is, do you think in your head that Jesus is the Son of God? If you do, heaven. If you don't, hell. And you know, one of the things that bothers me, I'm just going to take a little rabbit trail here for just a second. Uh, One of the things that bothers me here in the West so often is we don't think it's good. As the moment someone fears for their salvation, we think that's a bad thing. The moment someone comes to us, and as a pastor, I get this quite a bit. You know, you get someone come to you and they say, I'm afraid I'm not a Christian. I'm afraid I'm not going to heaven. And what do we do right away? Right away we think, oh, that's bad. Someone says, I listened to a message and now I'm questioning my salvation. We think, oh, that's a bad message you listened to. When in reality, there's a good chance that the Holy Spirit is working in them, trying to bring them to repentance. And what we do is instead of allowing them to fear, to feel something that only God can take away, we put a blanket of comfort over them so that they don't have to go to Jesus and actually find out. And we just pat them on the back and we say, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Then you're a Christian. But the Bible has so much more to it. It says, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but there's all kinds of... Read 1 John. As we talked about last week, read these verses. There's so much more than just belief. Is there fruit is a real good question, and that won't put them to bed very easily sometimes. But see, the reality is, I don't think it's bad for people to fear for their salvation. Because here's the thing. The, reason, the only reason people don't know what to do is because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Everybody I know who has a relationship with Jesus doesn't fear for their salvation every day. Why? Because they're walking with him. I mean, I've shared this story many times before. I'm not going to share it again now, but I was nine years old. I really feared for my salvation. My dad told me all kinds of verses. It didn't help. It was only when I went to Jesus and pursued him myself and he spoke to me himself. That's when you get assurance of salvation directly from him. I never, I never tell people. People go to my office and they say, "Uh, am I saved? I never tell people, yes, you are. (laughs) Who am I to tell them that? You know, on judgment day, they're going to stand before Jesus and Jesus says, are you coming in or out? I'm I'm in. Chris told me I'm saved. And he's going to say, you know what? I think you thought a little too much of him. What he says really doesn't matter here, okay? It's what I say. (laughs) Whatever happened to telling people, oh, you're scared for your salvation? Get on your knees with Jesus. Go ask the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says the Holy Spirit speaks in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, not somebody else for us, soothing us on the outside. You go to the Holy Spirit and you pursue him until he gives you satisfaction and you have this, yes, I'm your child. And you repent of your sins and you pursue till he gives you that. That's how you get assurance. It's a lot harder that way. Some of you might not like it, but it's, that's the best way. But we've made heaven and hell an intellectual issue. Someone comes to us, am I saved? Oh yeah, you are if you believe this thing in your head. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that actions are a big part of belief. If you really believe, then there's going to be fruit. If you truly believe, there's going to be fruit. And so Paul says, do not be deceived. One more passage of scripture here. Because I just want to make sure that you see that this is not a one piece of you know, piece of scripture, you know, Chris found a couple of obscure verses. This is right through the whole Bible. I could just, we could spend hours here going through this stuff. I'll just show you one more. Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. 
Paul says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this. People are looking for assurance. Am I saved or not saved? Here's Paul. This is Paul, not me. You may be sure of this. Paul says that everyone, I mean, when's the last time you told this to someone who was worried about their salvation? You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You know, we can give people empty words that make them feel good and put them to sleep at night, and they're empty. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay? So that's point number one. Fruit matters. It really matters. Fruit shows what's happening on the inside. All right? I know, don't leave now, because some of you are going to leave thinking you're not saved, okay? And we're, actually, I'm going to have a whole point, I think, next week, and we're going to talk about assurance of salvation even more, okay? But it's real important. Fruit matters. But now what I want to do is we still haven't tackled this issue head-on of how do works and faith work together in this thing of salvation. And so I want to just hit that now. I'm, I've been looking forward to this point all week, but we're going to look at James and we're going to look at Paul, okay? We, we certainly can't talk about works and faith and, and, and salvation without talking about Paul. We'd be really missing out. But what a lot of Christians are missing out these days is they only look at Paul, they don't look at James. And we have to look at the whole Bible. I mean, that's just a sure... I mean, we, people are looking, Paul, 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 and we should keep doing that. You can't get enough of Paul. But when you just do Paul, 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 and you don't do James, that's a problem. You're going to end up with heresy. We need the whole thing. I'm not saying we should focus less on Paul. I'm saying we should focus more on James and the Gospels and places like that too. And Let's have the whole thing in harmony. And so I'm going to read you a big chunk now, not one little verse. I am real committed to this. On this is a real important point. And I want you to understand it. And so I'm not going to just pull a verse out here, verse out there. I'm going to read you just a big chunk, a whole point of James's message. And it's, it's a whole point he does on works. The whole thing from beginning to end, I'm not going to take any words out. I'm not going to skip any verses. We're just going to read James chapter 2, 14 to 26. And if you have your Bible here, open it up, follow along with me. I'm reading in the ESV version. It's a, an accurate word-for-word translation. I'm not making this up. And I'm setting you up for this because some of the things I'm going to read to you is going to shock you. And I want you to remember when you're being shocked, oh, I don't like what Chris is preaching. No, 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 cop out. You don't like what the Bible is teaching, okay? Very important. Let's read this. James chapter 2, verse 14. If you don't have your Bible here, write it down. You can go look it up for yourself uh, later today and this week, all right? So here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Oh, good question, James, right? Carnal Christian, unbeliever, remember what I just told you? I mean, this, this teaching is just rank, and it's everywhere in the church, and James asked the same question. Can a person have faith and not have works? Can he be a carnal Christian over here, and can that faith actually save him? Well, let's see what he answers. Next verse, if a brother or sister, he now is going to give us an analogy. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good are words without actions, right? Now he ties it back to faith. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. That's James talking, not me. It's dead. It's not alive. It's not real. It's not good enough to save you. Faith by itself without works is dead. 
Keep reading. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. So you have a mental belief in Jesus as the Son of God. You believe that God is one. Excellent. Even the demons believe and shudder. Nobody's arguing that they're saved. I mean, the demons believe Jesus is the Son of God. The demons believe he died on the cross. And they shudder with terror because they're on their way to hell. They're not saved, but they have a mental belief. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You may as well not have it. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? What? I mean, this is the one that shocks us because we don't read our Bibles. And we've been looking at Paul and we've actually been skewing what Paul was actually saying because what Paul was saying has to be understood in the context of also what James was saying. And Paul and James agree with each other because the Bible has many writers, but it only has one author and that's the Holy Spirit. And so these guys are saying the same thing. They're saying it in different words. But we've only been looking at these words over here and misunderstanding them in our Western context and missing out on James' words over here. And James says that Abraham, our father, was justified by works. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So when he obeyed, he was justified. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Look at this. Faith was completed by his works. We have this huge divorce in our culture where we have faith and we have works. And that divorce is what's causing us so much confusion. That we think that a person can say they have faith over here because they believe something without doing something over here. And James says, no, you can't. That's not faith. It's not called faith until it's joined with works. The two things go together. It's faith works. Just thought of that just now. That was actually pretty good. I didn't the other services didn't even get that, okay? <laughs> Okay, justifying faith is complete by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, we love that verse. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness because we think it means he believed up here. And that's the whole opposite of what he's making the point here is that Abraham's belief here led him to obey God and offer up his son Isaac on the altar. It's faith works that saves. True faith that leads to works and that causes works is what saves people, not a belief in your head that doesn't do anything in your will. Thank goodness. I just love the Bible. I just give, this is life. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith apart from works is dead. There is not a, there's not a gap between faith and works. There's faith and works together. True faith causes works. Okay? Now let's go to Paul. Because again, we're going to end up with heresy if we interpret James in such a way to cancel out Paul. And we're going to end up with heresy if we, if we interpret Paul in such a way as to cancel out James. It's the Holy Spirit was the author of the entire Bible. They work together. So let's go look at Paul now. And you're going to find some wonderful truth. We're going to understand it now with James together. And grace just comes out 3D then. Just pops to life. Here we go. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul and James are on the, it's the same coin. It's the same coin, saving faith. Paul is on the first side of the coin. He says, when you want to be saved, you can't earn it first. 
It's got to be a gift. And James is on the flip side of the coin, and he says, and if it's real faith, it's going to lead to works. But what Paul is saying here is amazing. It's actually an amazing truth is that when you want to be saved, and actually not just when you want to be saved, this message isn't just to non-Christians. This is for all of us who are Christians. When you want to be forgiven, because we all need to confess and be forgiven thousands of times in our life. And every time you want to be forgiven, or if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you want to be saved, here's the thing you need to realize. You never earn it first. It starts with faith, but it doesn't start with just a mental belief faith. It starts with real faith that then leads to works. But you don't start. See, what, here, here's where we mess this up. As human beings, we have this tendency to always want to earn stuff. So I sin, and I mess up, which we all do, and I do many times as well. We sin, I screw up, and then I think to myself, oh, I can't say sorry right away because I feel like a hypocrite. And so we put ourselves, isn't this what we do kind of naturally? We put ourselves through a week of purgatory or a month of purgatory. And we kind of just, you know, and, and I got to do a bunch of good things and I got to be good for a week and I got to not do this for a few days and then God can forgive me. And we try to get into a place where we deserve his forgiveness and that is what Paul says, you can't do it. It's always a gift. You don't work first. You can't do enough good things to deserve it. It's not possible ever. So don't even try. You start with saying, Jesus, I need your help. I need your forgiveness again. And if that faith is real, now I turn to him again and I pursue him and I have works. It's faith works. But what many of us do is we do that, we get them flipped around and we try to do work faith. And then what you end up with is a heavy burden of condemnation. Because you're always trying to do something so that you feel like you can be forgiven, but you can never feel like it. You can never earn it. You can never deserve it. So the moment you sin, here's the thing. This is the beauty. I mean, this is, this is good news. The sun's coming out on this message now. I'm very excited about this, okay? Um, the moment you sin, the moment you sin, you can turn to God and say, oh, Lord, I am sorry I did that. In fact, that would be the best thing you could do. And you say, but I don't even feel bad for my sin when I first sin. That doesn't matter. Then tell him that too and ask him to give for grace to feel remorse. Because that's grace. Grace is the power to do what pleases him. Grace is even the power to repent. But the moment you sin, you don't try to go through this week of getting yourself right so that then you can ask for forgiveness. No, no, it's not going to work and it's just going to put you deeper down the hole. The moment you sin, you say, Jesus, it has to be a gift. I can't earn it. I can't deserve it. I can't believe what I just did. I don't even feel bad. Please, Lord, I want to repent. Help me to. And of course, you're going to feel like a hypocrite. And you're going to feel like you're not forgiven. But here's the good news about that. It's not your feelings that have to forgive you. It's only God that has to forgive you. So your feelings don't have to forgive you. You can just say on the feelings. And you can just say sorry and repent and ask for help to repent. And then you can turn back to God. And if the faith is real, see, it's not real if you're just casual about it. And you actually don't care about changing. If you just say sorry, that's, see, then that's not real faith. But if you actually care about it and you want to stop, that's real faith. It's going to lead to works and fruit. And you can mess up a hundred times. You can mess up a thousand times. You can mess up a hundred thousand times. And the forgiveness is fresh and new every time. God never gets disillusioned with you, as I say over and over again, because he has no illusions about you to begin with. You get disillusioned because you do the same thing. And on the fifth time, you're like, I can't say sorry about this anymore. And God says, keep saying sorry. He delights in that pursuit. You're reaching for holiness and failing. He picks you up. He forgives you. Let's do it again. That's the grace walk. It's the grace walk. Very important.
We have to start teaching people the difference between mental belief and saving belief. That's what we have to start doing. When we're witnessing to people and trying to lead them to the Lord, when we're talking to each other, we have to differentiate between mental belief and saving belief. Mental belief is fire insurance. People just asking Jesus into their heart, there is no intention to turn from their selfish, worldly ways and turn to Jesus. They just want to go to heaven when they're done. Live for yourself while you're here, and then you get to go to heaven at the end. That is mental belief. Saving belief goes from the mind and it saturates down into the will and the heart. Saving belief looks like this. I actually feel remorse for my sins, Jesus, and I realize I need you and I don't want to live that way anymore. That's real belief. And I begin to go after God in my own imperfect way. But we have to start teaching people that, not just using the word belief because it's causing all kinds of confusion that people think they can just think something and that's okay. Now, I want to give you a really encouraging word here because probably some of you here, maybe all of you right now are going, you're looking back over your last week and you're seeing some sins and you're going, do I have saving belief or mental belief? And what I want to encourage you with now for a few minutes is this. This is very, very encouraging, I think, is, um, is that uh, saving belief, when I say saving belief causes obedience, it's not, it doesn't cause perfection, okay? Saving belief does not cause perfection. I want to encourage you with that. And actually, did I... I forgot some PowerPoints, didn't I? I always do that in the 11 o'clock service. Okay, I'm going to get to that encouraging word. I'm just going to put the PowerPoints up here now that I forgot, okay? Definition of grace, part two. Part two, last week we looked at part one. Definition of grace is empowerment to live up to his standard. Definition part two is forgiveness is always free for the asking. You don't ever have to deserve it first. That's very important to remember, okay? So that's part two. Part one is grace is God empowering you to live up to his standards. Part two is when you're messing up, forgiveness always comes first. You don't have to work it up. Don't have to deserve. That's very important. Okay? Now I want to give you three clear points, and then I'm going to come right back to that obedience doesn't mean perfection thing, because that's where I was. Um, But three things. This is going to help you to remember in this message now uh, the the relationship between works and faith and salvation, all right? First thing is works alone cannot save you. You must have faith in Jesus. And everybody in the Western church knows this one. The problem is that they stop there. So you you can't earn salvation. You can't earn Jesus' favor. You have to have faith. You must believe in him first. You must ask him for help because it takes his grace to do what pleases him. Very important, okay? Once you're a Christian too, you can't just be a nice person and think that's enough. It's a relationship with Jesus. That's what he wants. The most important thing God calls us to is to love his son, Jesus. Not be a nice person, okay? So works can't save you. You must have faith in Jesus. You must have a relationship, okay? Now, point two, though, is what everybody leaves out in the Western church right now, and that is this. Real faith always leads to good works, which is what I was just saying. Real faith. So works doesn't save you. Faith does. But if it's real faith, it leads to works. If there's not a pursuit of holiness in your life, a desire for holiness, then you're not saved. And you say, but I believed. That's not the belief the Bible's talking about. It's the belief that causes you to say, yes, sir, to God. And now this is the part where I talk about obedience and and it doesn't mean perfection. And this is what I love about Abraham. Abraham believed God. Just flip ahead two verses there. um, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. This this verse is repeated in the scripture a whole bunch of times. I have all the passages up there. Uh, James talks about it. Uh, Paul talks about it. Um, Because they're all, the Bible lifts up Abraham. Abraham is our primary example of what saving faith looks like. He's our primary example. So if we have faith like Abraham has, that's saving faith. We're all going to be saved. 
And, and so we want to emulate that. Now, what I, what's so amazing about Abraham, and this is why it's so encouraging to me, is that Abraham had saving faith, but Abraham wasn't perfect. And that's why I'm so happy that the Bible talks about Abraham's imperfections. Okay? So Abraham, uh, God comes to Abraham and he says, uh, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to bless the whole world through that son, and that's a, which is a prophecy of the Messiah. And Abraham says, yes, Lord, I believe you. Even though he's 75 years old and it looks impossible. Abraham says, yes, Lord, I believe you. And, uh, and God says, okay. And we all go, yes, he believed. It was credited to him as righteousness. It was in his head. And that's not what it was. God says, okay, prove it to me. I want you to move to a land. I will show you. And Abraham said, yes, sir. See, it was the yes, sir. Actually, it's the obedience that makes this belief get counted to him as righteousness. That's what Abraham did. But it's what happens next that really encourages me because we all look at that and we go, oh, Abraham, you're so spiritual. I don't know if I can be that obedient. I'm not perfect. I sometimes do bad things. Well, it's what happens next that really excites me because, and usually I'm not excited when people sin, but I'm very excited that Abraham did because Abraham now goes and he goes to obey. He goes to move to Canaan, which is what God told him to do. When he gets there, there's a famine, right? And there's a famine, and that means that him and Sarah and his whole household, they have to go next door to Egypt to spend some time until the famine's over. And so they go to Egypt. And when they get there, all of the Egyptian men start ogling Sarah and falling madly in love with her because she's so drop-dead gorgeous. It says it. Look at Genesis 12, 10. I'm not making this up. You can look it up. All of the princes of Egypt were talking about her to Pharaoh. Okay? And as a little aside here, by the way, so she was just stunning and gorgeous. What makes the story even more amazing is the fact that she was 65 years old at this point. (laughs) So, wow. Anyway, but, so she comes into Egypt and the whole country grinds to a halt. They're madly in love with her. And it's so bad that Abraham's afraid they're going to kill him in order to take her. Okay, and so Abraham, the man who believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, what does he do next? He does something extremely human and very encouraging is he lies. And he says, she's my sister. Now, actually, technically, it's not a lie because they were half brother, half sister, which is real nasty for us now in our culture. But, but he's, it, it is still a lie in God's eyes because he's deceiving, right? He's not going to tell that, that she's his wife, Okay. So he tells a lie. Now, guys, I want you to think about this. This is not a, your average run-of-the-mill lie. This is a real cowardly act. Because what happens next is Pharaoh gives him a whole bunch of money, well, animals, but in that day, right? So he gives him a whole bunch of animals and then takes Sarah to be in his harem, okay, to go to bed with him. Now, that, I mean, this is just, that is cowardly, despicable, sordid. I mean, talk about not standing up for the truth. Talk, talk about not protecting your wife. Talk about not doing the right thing. I mean, that's horrible. Abraham takes money and lies to save his own skin and sends his wife off to this other guy. Now, God saves the whole situation, doesn't let Sarah sleep with, with Pharaoh. But nonetheless, I mean, Abraham really, really messes up. And yet, Abraham believed God and was counted in him as righteousness. See, it's not perfection. And what's really even more amazing to me than this is this isn't the only time that Abraham does this. 24 years later, Genesis 20, Genesis 12, he does this. Genesis 20, he does the same thing again. Genesis 20, he's now 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. This is the same year that they are going to conceive with the promised child, Isaac. I mean, you would think by now, Abraham must be pretty close to perfect because he's been walking with the Lord on this faith path and he's pretty amazing. And here it is, 99 years old and he, they're in the land of Gerar and the king Abimelech falls madly in love with, with uh, Sarah again and Abraham does the same thing again. He lies, 
sends her off to go to bed with Abimelech. God again intervenes. Thank goodness for God, right? Sometimes he doesn't let us do the things that we want to do. And, and God saves the thing. But again, Abraham is cowardly and lying. When you look in between this, there's the whole Hagar-Ishmael scenario. And we see that Abraham had many character flaws and many major falls that caused a lot of pain, big sins. And you say, well, I thought fruit mattered. How can, how can Abraham believe God and has counted him as righteousness? And then you look at the, at the story of Saul, and Saul sinned, and God rejected him. But with Abraham, it's credited to him as righteousness. How is that possible? How is it possible? And this is where we have to talk about the difference between immaturity and rebellion. See, there is a real big difference in God's eyes between someone who messes up out of immaturity and someone who messes up out of rebellion. I want to just read you this so I uh, make sure I get the whole thing here. But really big difference in God's eyes between messing up, falling off the wagon, and making mistakes while you're in the pursuit of obedience and the very different scenario where you are indifferent to God and resisting God and disobeying him. See, when Saul sinned, God rejected him. He rejected Saul. He was angry. And, and, and Saul, and, but it was because Saul was resisting God and he was disobedient. And when Abraham fell, this is how Abraham fell. God, Abraham didn't fall out of disobedience trying to say no to God. He fell while he was saying yes. God comes to him and Abraham, every time God came to Abraham and told him to do something, the, Abraham's heart cry was, yes, sir. And then while he's on the path of obedience, he runs into some adventures and his weaknesses come out and he has a big fall. But God has tender, loving patience for that kind of thing. He has tender, loving patience for you and I if deep in our heart of hearts, even if it's very weak, and even if it's sometimes up and down, but somewhere deep inside of us, there's a yes to God. We're very imperfect. We've got all kinds of hang-ups. We've got character issues. We're falling. We're making mistakes. But deep inside, there's a part of us that says yes. We're not trying to resist God. We actually want him to be happy with us. We actually want to know him better, even if we're not anywhere near it. And if there's that yes in your spirit to God, then when you fail, it's the failure of immaturity. But the failure of rebellion is the failure of Saul, which is I'm blazing my own path. I don't want to hear what God's saying to me. I'm in love with the world. I'm doing my own thing. I'm indifferent to God. I don't even really think about wanting to please him. I just want to go to heaven when I die. Those are the failures of rebellion, and it's a big difference. Is there a yes, God, in your heart? You know, I would just want to overemphasize this point one last time. I, want to, I think if you think of life as a pathway, it's very helpful. And if you think of the path of obedience like this, in, in each one of our lives, God is somewhere and he's calling. He's saying, I want you over here. And he's over there and he's calling. He's saying, Chris, or whoever, whatever your name is, he's saying, I want you over here. And deep inside your heart cry is, yes, I, I want to go where God is. And so you're trying to move there. And as you move there, there's detours. There's, you get turned around sometimes. You fall off the side. There's big falls. There's small falls, right? And you scrape your knees, you get hurt. But as long as you're moving in that direction, even though it's imperfect, it's not a beeline, it's, it's a weak call of yes. Many of us, it's a weak yes. It's not a strong yes. But it's a yes, nonetheless. And you're moving. You're trying to go towards God with whatever it is that you have inside of you. And then God is so patient and loving with you. His grace is amazing. And it's not, by the way, there's no condemnation. On this path, that's the path of there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We talked about it last week. In Christ Jesus is I'm pursuing this way. No condemnation. And I just want to take one second here to say this too. When I say there's no condemnation, that doesn't mean there's no consequence 
Sin always brings consequences. It brought consequences for Abraham too. Sin always brings consequences. Whether you're on the path of obedience towards God or whether you're on the path of rebellion, which is just doing your own thing, sin always brings consequences. If I do dumb things, I'll reap dumb things. But here's the difference. There's a vast difference between the two. When I sin on this path, God will discipline me, no question. Hebrews 12 says he disciplines those he loves. But when he disciplines me and I'm on this path, it's the discipline of a tender, loving father. And you know what else is really amazing to me? When I fall on this path, I have to suffer the consequences of my sin. I do. But when I suffer the consequences of my sin on this path, the Holy Spirit comes alongside me and his grace gives me strength. He's with me in the consequences for my own sin. I mean, it's just win-win with him when you're on the obedience path and your heart is yes, sir, like Abraham. Still consequences, still pain, but it's credited to you as righteousness as you move towards him. But if you're on the other path, see, and this is the danger of the grace teaching today. The grace teachings of today tell Christians the lie that everybody who asks Jesus into their heart is automatically on this path. It's not true. You're on this path if it's yes, sir, to God, but you're on this path if it's I love the world and I'm doing my own thing, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. And if you're on this path and you're just resisting God, you don't want to hear what he has to say for you. You don't want him to run your life. You think he's a bore. I'd rather do my own thing. If you're on this path, when you get disciplined, it's not the discipline of a tender, loving father. It's the, difference. It's the discipline of a mad dad. And if you persist in this way, it will transition from the discipline of a mad dad to the punishment of a wrathful God, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. You can look it up. And when you go through the consequences of your sin on this path, the Holy Spirit gives you the cold shoulder. You go through it on your own. Whereas when you're on this path, he's with you every step of the way, even when you fall. Now, the really good news that is very exciting here today is that all of us here today, whether you're on this path or this path, you just, it's, one, it's one thing to do. It's getting off this path and onto this path is as easy as getting on your knees in your heart humbling yourself before God and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's as easy as that. It's as easy as going from there to being on this one. There's still consequences. There may be many consequences for your sins ahead of you. Many tough things, many hard things that you have to suffer. But at least you'll suffer them with His Holy Spirit's grace coming with you. All you have to do is repent. And you know what I think some people do? I think there's some people here today, you don't even think you can obey. You think, it's impossible for me. I just love the world too much. You know what the beauty of God is in his grace? You can even tell him that and ask you to help him with that. Ask, ask him to help you with that. Mark, I forget the, I, it just came to me in the last service. I didn't have a chance to write it down. So I don't know where. So you just have to read the whole book. But anyway, in Mark, there's a great story. And there's a dad. And he has a demon-possessed son. And he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can heal him, I ask you to heal him. And Jesus is if I can heal him? And the guy says, I know I don't believe. Help me overcome my unbelief, right? And Jesus says, yeah, and then he does it. If you're on this path and you don't even think you're capable of giving God a yes in your heart, you even tell him that. And you say, I'm sorry, Lord. I don't even see how I can do it. I just love this world too much. Help me overcome my unbelief. I want to get on the path of obedience. And even there, God can work with that. He puts you on the path there and you're in immaturity and there's all kinds of stuff he'll discipline out of you yet, but he's going to have it with you as a tender, loving father and he's going to be with you the whole way. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul captured this whole lifestyle of pressing on towards God in the midst of our human Im- immaturities and imperfections just beautifully. He said this, and not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I'm, we're not perfect. If the Apostle Paul wasn't perfect, we're not perfect. We're all going to sin and mess up. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. I still keep going for God because Christ Jesus has made me, made me his own. And I want you to notice the pressing on. It's not the, what some of the grace teachers today are teaching. If I just sit back and let Jesus do it. No, no, no. I'm pressing on. I have these sin issues in my life. I have these character issues in my life. I'm confronting them. I'm confessing them. I'm, I'm exerting energy to press on and leave them behind me. That, and that's a sign of true faith. If you are not pressing on, maybe you don't have true faith. If you have true faith, you're bothered by those things. You're going against them. I press on and make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. We leave behind the condemnation. We say sorry. We mess up. We fall. I'm sorry, Jesus. I hate that I did that. Help me. And we throw it behind. And our emotions say, you're not forgiven yet. And we just say, I ignore you emotions. I'm leaving it behind. And I press on towards Jesus, forgetting what is behind And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. I'll just throw one more thing up on the screen there and then we'll be done. We've already talked about this, but I said I would give you three points and these three points are essential for understanding works and faith and salvation. First one again, works alone can't save you. You've got to have faith. But real faith always leads to good works. And then the other thing to remember, the whole time we're on this grace walk is it always starts by asking for forgiveness, then works. You don't do works first. First, ask for forgiveness. Immediately ask for forgiveness. Then pursue God in good works. By guys, let me close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we want to have, we, we, Lord, we do not want to reject either your holiness or your love. We receive your love. We receive your tender, loving mercy and patience, Jesus. We love that, Father, and we, but we don't leave holiness behind, Lord. We don't leave grace behind. We embrace holiness with grace. We embrace holiness with grace, Jesus. We want to have, be zealous in our pursuit of righteousness. True faith, Lord, causes us to press on. Father, there are many of us here today, Lord, we are under conviction, Jesus. We need to leave things behind. There are things in our life we need to turn off. There are things in our life we need to cut out, Jesus. There are things in our life we need to, to just stop. True faith, Lord Jesus, we crucify our passions and desires, Jesus. And we embrace a life of holiness by the empowerment of your grace. And I just thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do in our lives as we grow in your love and in holiness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.